Good afternoon, everyone. It's Dr. Nigro again with our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. Um, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. And uh, this last week has really been a pleasure because I've had an opportunity to connect with a lot of people who've reached out through Psychology Today. Um, looking forward to further conversations and actually uh, meeting some of you guys. So today's topic is something that uh, is a really crucial part of dealing with mental health and psychiatric conditions and going to focus on self-injurious behaviors and suicidality. Now, if we just step back from a non-psychiatric perspective and ask, why would somebody want to cause physical pain to themselves? It seems almost irrational, but in working with individuals uh, who have a history or are currently engaging in self-injurious behaviors, it makes perfect sense to them. Now, when I'm doing my structured diagnostic clinical interview, uh, obviously one of the questions I ask for is any history of self-injurious behaviors, giving examples of cutting, uh, of burning, scratching. Um, <clears throat> and it's really important to understand, one, what is the methodology and what is the possible lethality and three, what is the reason for in someone to engage in self-injurious behaviors? And there's generally three reasons why people will engage in self-injurious behaviors. So if, if, if you think of it this way, how do you get rid of a headache? You drop a hammer on your foot. You temporarily forget about the pain in your head and you focus on the pain in your foot. So one one possible possible reason for engaging in self-injurious behaviors is a transference of emotional pain that I perceive that I cannot control to a physical pain that I can control. A second reason is it's a form of self-punishment. I deserve to feel hurt. I deserve to feel pain. And third is a form of uh, I feel so numb or or self-loathing. And understanding uh, the reasons for engaging the behavior is incredibly important from a therapeutic perspective. So on the episode of Borderline Personality, there's a common misconception that people, if, if you cut, you have borderline personality. Not true at all. These, these, this type of behavior tends to occur in the mood disorders, yes, and in the personality disorders, but it's, it, I've seen a lot of people over the years kind of hang their diagnostic head on, oh, you cut, you must be borderline. Again, only one of the nine symptoms. Not everybody who cuts is borderline personality. Now, it gets especially concerning, uh, in, in children and adolescents. Um, I always tell parents, you should know your kids' social media accounts. You should monitor your kids' internet search history, uh, their YouTube history. 
is kids are really not good at deleting their 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 digital history and there's so much out there you can youtube how to cut and where to cut um and so we if we just take cutting for example um it's important to also assess for where do you cut so someone may say i'm cutting on my upper thighs or under my arms on my stomach that's a really good indicator that they don't want anybody else to know they're doing this if somebody is making lacerations in very obvious parts of their body typically arms wrists it's important to kind of assess of how they navigate that do they wear long sleeve shirts is there a sense of embarrassment is there a sense of shame or are they doing it or are they purposely wearing clothes that the world can see that these are not simply cat scratches that these are self-inflicted wounds so Diagnostically, it's really important to understand not just what the specific methodology is, but also where on the body these are this behavior is taking place, and thirdly, the reason for it. And it's it's a tough behavior to extinguish because it's so immediate. It gives a person a sense of immediate relief and whatever those one of those three possible reasons are it you know there's there's techniques such as um, put an orange in the fridge, freeze it, and hold on to it and some for some people that works they can grab uh, an orange and, and have that freezing sensation on their skin and feel some sense of relief. Um, the dialectical behavioral model, which I've said before, I don't agree with, you know, draw a red, take a red marker and draw a line on your arm. Seriously, like, like that works. Um, how somebody, if you're sticking with cutting, a general rule of thumb, um, horizontal lacerations are generally indicative of self-injury. Uh, vertical lacerations uh, are more indicative of possible suicidality. Uh, harm reduction is an important part of a cognitive behavioral perspective uh, in terms of managing self-injurious behaviors because, as I said, it's not an easy behavior to extinguish because it's so immediate. You can, you know... People have access to pencils, they have access to pens, they have access to razors, they have access to lighters, they have access to a variety of things, uh, paper clips. Um, hydrogen peroxide, band-aids, clean razors. I know it sounds like, oh, okay, are you encouraging this behavior? No, but given, you know, the knowledge of, I know this behavior is not going to stop, you know, the goal is eventually you know, extinction of, of this maladaptive behavior. But if someone is in the midst, in the, in the throngs of engaging this behavior, you at least want to make sure they're doing it safely and, and minimizing risk of infection or disease. Now, the the self-injurious behavior relate to suicide? Uh, possibly. And suicide is uh, something myself and I know my colleagues take, very seriously 
because the the data we have about suicide actually comes from people who have attempted it and have failed. And that's a difficult population to work with because some people have a sudden insight in terms of, oh, my God, you know, thank God that didn't work. Um, I know what I was thinking. Other people um, kind of internalize it and have a perspective of I'm – suck at everything so bad that I can't even kill myself. And that's a difficult patient to work with because, you know, the suicide is generally not, not a first line uh, where, yeah, people can be impulsive and, and kids will take, you know, extra doses of their melatonin or um, take a little bit of asp- extra aspirin, take, you know, extra acetaminophen or, or ibuprofen. I always tell parents, make sure you safeguard the medications. And if they're self-injurious behaviors, yes, maybe cumbersome, but remove all sharp objects and, and minimize as much access as you can to anything within the environment. And even if, it, if, if it's a disjointed family where a child has divorced parents and one and living between both homes, this has to be united front, independent of the dynamics of the relationship between both parents. This is about your kid, and you need to do as much as you can to minimize the access. It's not your necessarily your job, your responsibility to treat this. Um, but again, these you know, suicide is really uh, a last resort, and the, there, there's different theories on it, and. Somebody who's clinically depressed, um, who suddenly has this spontaneous uh, happiness with no apparent rhyme or reason or cause, I remember in my academic training is that's somebody you need to be concerned about. Because the theory is that person has generally made peace with the decision they're about to make. Um, you can get into different theories, um, like people consider hanging, uh, similar to giving the middle finger to somebody. You didn't realize how much pain I'm in, so I'm going to make you cut me down. And And if you think about it, Hanging is a very methodical um, process. You have to be able to first search the environment to find something strong enough to support tying a rope. Then you have to be able to get the rope. Then you have to be able to get a step stool, a chair, a ladder, something. Then you have to be able to tie the rope around your neck. So there's, there's multiple steps in this. And... I can only imagine the amount of pain that somebody has been in and also the reconciliation that they've had because given the multiple steps involved to not disengage from them and, you know, like, I'm climbing the ladder, I'm tying the noose, kind of having like a sudden insight and aha moment of like, what am I doing? I think that person really has kind of come to peace with, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Uh, incredibly important things and 
the pandemic I've seen, and I know my colleagues as well have seen a surge primarily in um, self-injurious behaviors, but, you know, there's also something called uh, active suicidal ideations and passive suicidal ideations. And an active suicidal ideation is someone says, I, I want to commit suicide. And it becomes even more concerning when they have a plan. Passive suicidal ideations are when someone says, you know what, if I don't wake up tomorrow, I don't care. Both equally concerning, but active suicidal ideations are certainly much more concerning. And in the United States, um, we have something called a Section 12, which if, if we're assessing an individual or, you know, you're treating them from a psychopharmacological perspective, you're in therapy with someone, um, we have the ability to file a Section 12, which is essentially contacting um, the police and fire department, uh, signing a form, and having somebody psychiatrically hospitalized or at least evaluated in an emergency room. Uh, I think the frequency depends on location, uh, socioeconomic status, um, access to, to resources, but this is something that cannot be taken lightly. And it, it, it gets a little more, it, and is there a degree of attention seeking in a lot of cases? Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. Is it a cry for help? But I don't have a crystal ball, and I don't know anybody who can predict the future. But it's something that I will always tend to err on the side of caution. I would rather have a patient upset with me than a patient who's dead because I didn't do my job. So it, it, it it's concerning stuff. And it, it is a part of mental health. It is a part of, of, uh, many different psychiatric conditions. And again, trying to move away from that only the only people who cut or self injure are people with borderline personality is, is, is completely false. Um, from my experience, a majority of people, when I'm asking the reasons for engaging in, in self-injurious behaviors, is the transference of emotional pain to physical pain. Uh, again, not an immediate behavior that one can stop, but this is also a, these are, this is also a symptom. This is also, and suicidal ideations are also a symptom. Rarely is somebody going to wake up one day and go from a state of complete happiness and euphoria to, I want to kill myself. As I've always said, X causes Y, and that's the importance of, of therapy. Never, ever, ever, ever underestimate the severity or the seriousness, because a lot of cases, sometimes people can just, without intent, go too far and not know what line that they've... um be, if they've crossed the lines, like, oh boy. Um, it's also self-injurious behavior is also a form of control. I can control something because my whole life feels out of control. I can't control my depression. I can't control my mood. I can't control my anxiety, but I can control pain. As ironic as that may seem, 
from a clinical perspective, the psychological pain to, for that particular person obviously is way too overwhelming. And there's a perceived sense of con- loss of control. And, you know, in, in, in a Western civilization, we are, you know, all about control, all about autonomy, all about independence. It's also a form of release. Uh, just as somebody may emote psychologically or uh, psychologically vomit in the therapy session, uh, patients will also say it is a sense of relief, re- release. It is because uh, I'm taking whatever emotions are have just built up and have become so overwhelming and just getting it out. And most patients, in, for the most part, have a, a, a pretty strong awareness that they know the behavior is maladaptive. They just don't know what else to do because this is, you know, the razor's there. I'm feeling this. I have pretty quick access to it. That's why it's a harder behavior to extinguish. And um, again, as I said, harm reduction is a really important first-line intervention to at least make sure someone is doing it safely. Um, and again, with, with 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 suicide, it's it's something that you 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 can't take lightly because you just don't know. And if somebody is in that headspace. Um, you got to respect the amount of pain that they're in and what they're struggling with. Um, sometimes people who have repeated suicide attempts, they tend to get overlooked. It's like, oh, they're, they're just dramatic. You know, they're just attention seeking. And you know what? Even if it is attention seeking, again, without the crystal ball, how do you know if this time that person won't go too far? Um so uh, it's just over the last few weeks, I've had a lot of pain. I mean, this is very common in, in diagnostics. It's very common in, 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 the, in the populations that I, I work with. I just wanted, uh, wanted to bring to light uh, the importance of recognizing um, that these are pretty serious conditions. These are pretty serious symptoms um 911 emergency room if if you're a parent uh, a caretaker of a child adolescent you, you they'll get over being upset with you but you won't ever get over regretting not making that phone call err on the side of caution i cannot tell you enough please err on the side of caution and open dialogue in families, uh, because again, a lot of people tend to do this stuff in secret. Uh, open dialogue is really important, and open dialogue does not mean condoning it. But if if a, a child or adolescent or even an adult in a relationship has the opportunity to discuss the mood state that they're in, there's a good chance that they may opt for just wanting to release that maybe with a phone call to their therapist, to a family member. Um, It's, you you just, you, you gotta, and again, if, if somebody, you know, or yourself is engaging in these behaviors and they're not in treatment, they gotta be in treatment. 
because these are things that you know there's there's no self-help book for this there's no um, google page there's no wikipedia page um, but there are pages that you can look up on internet sites that can tell you exactly how to do it that's scary um and i've worked with enough people who have done it so you know lethality is passive uh ideations um Active ideations, suicidal or uh, self-injurious behaviors are all very concerning because at this point, a person is in an acute state of psychiatric distress and there's no medication to stop somebody from self-harming. There's no medication to stop somebody from having suicidal ideations. Now, an antidepressant may do may decrease depressive symptoms or mood lability. If you're talking about like the bipolar disorders, uh, especially in, in the depressive phases, or if you're talking about borderline personality, again, there's no magic pill for any of this. And I know you've heard my wife talk about this when she did uh, some episodes on psychopharmacology, but I just wanted to bring attention uh, to be vigilant as, as family members, be vigilant as friends, be vigilant as colleagues be vigilant as parents and always again err on the side of caution until next time hope everyone is doing well take care of yourselves take care of each other uh really appreciate the feedback i i look forward to doing this every week uh gives me a lot of pleasure to share my experiences my knowledge and um i'll talk to you guys next week take care bye